When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. So far, we've been watching this letter exchange between Moroni and Amaron. There's another set of letters exchanged that we need to spend some time on too. And this one is between Moroni and Pahoran, who happens to be the chief judge at the time. The story begins in chapter 59. We just skipped over a bunch of stuff about the stripling warriors, which we'll cover in the second half of this lesson. But still focusing on Moroni's strength, which leads to some potential weakness, See it start to unfold in chapter 59. In verse 1, he's just heard from Helaman about how things are going for those stripling warriors. He's thrilled that they've been so successful, but also very concerned at the smallness of their numbers. They're going to need more reinforcements. They need more help. We'll talk more about that next time too. So what does he do in verse 3? It came to pass that he immediately sent an epistle to Pahoran, desiring that he should cause men to be gathered together to strengthen Helaman, or the armies of Helaman. Now this is part of Moroni's strength. One of the things that makes him such an effective military commander is that he's a man of action. He doesn't get this letter from Helaman and say, well, we should probably, I don't know, organize some kind of an exploratory committee and do some testing, maybe some surveys that we could send out, maybe a focus group or something, and maybe decide some different possibilities of things that we could do to make things a little easier for Helaman and his men. No, he immediately sends an epistle to Pahoran asking for some help. A man of action. Love that about him. It can get him into problems, as we're about to see. But he's a man of action, strength, and some weakness. I also love the way he says it, though, at the end of verse 3. His hope was that Helaman might, with ease, maintain that part of the land which he had been so miraculously prospered in regaining. Now expand that beyond land. And are there things that you have miraculously regained, such as forgiveness of our sins? the companionship of the Holy Ghost, the love of someone that we have offended. And how diligent are we at maintaining the thing that we have miraculously regained? That's why King Benjamin was so adamant about talking about retaining a remission of our sins. It took a miracle to gain it in the first place. What are we doing to hold on to it against the odds? Well, unfortunately, later in this chapter, the city of Nephihah is lost when it's attacked by a massive Lamanite army. And as we learn in verse 9, as Moroni had supposed that there should be men sent to the city of Nephihah to the assistance of the people to maintain that city, the same thing he'd been asking for for the armies of Helaman. No reinforcements. And what frustrated Moroni so much was that he knew that it was easier to keep the city from falling into the hands of the Lamanites than to retake it from them. He thought it could be easily maintained if they just had enough strength to do so. 
No wonder in verse 10, he retains all the force that he has to maintain those places which he had recovered. I've quoted this from President Benson so many times already in these lessons. Better to prepare and prevent than to repair and repent. I'm so grateful for the gift of repentance. I would never minimize that great gift. It's what allows us to miraculously regain things at all. But it's so much easier to maintain our position than to crawl our way back up the slippery slope that we have descended. The same is true, by the way, not just of our own retention of spiritual strength or the companionship of the Spirit, but what we call retention in the missionary sense, to help people stay strong and stay active. The better we do at retention and the less we'll need to do of reactivation. That's often hard work indeed. Now in verse 11, when Moroni saw that the city of Nephiha was lost, he was exceedingly sorrowful. But notice what accompanies that sorrow. He began to doubt. He didn't doubt the justness of his cause. He didn't doubt the power of God to strengthen the armies. But he doubted because of the wickedness of the people, whether they deserved the help of God at all whether they were relying on his strength as they ought. His chief captains felt the same way. They doubted and marveled also because of the wickedness of the people. And this, because of the success of the Lamanites over them. That's what shocked them. That's what made them marvel and doubt. Wait a minute, we lost? How could we possibly lose when God is on our side? Oh, maybe God wasn't on our side because we weren't on his side. You see, it's not just faith in God and in his gospel that is required of us. We need to have faith in each other and faith in ourselves. But that's one place where doubt can very justifiably creep in. We have far more evidence to make us doubt ourselves and each other than we ever would have of doubting the gospel or doubting God. But what does Moroni do with that sorrow and doubt? There's another emotion that creeps up in verse 13. It came to pass that Moroni was angry with the government because of their indifference concerning the freedom of their country. He was sorrowful about wickedness, but he was angry about indifference. I understand how people can fall into iniquity, and it sorrows me. But to become apathetic when we have such a cause as this? Can you sense Moroni's frustration? his righteous indignation, and, uh-oh, his anger? Well, that starts to explain the approach that he took in chapter 60. And 60 and 61 are a fascinating interchange between Captain Moroni, the chief captain of the Nephite army, and his superior, Pahoran, the chief judge, the commander-in-chief, as we might say. And what you see in chapter 60 is similar to what we saw earlier, both the strength of Captain Moroni and the associated weakness that is inherent in that strength. We see both the heads and the tails of his coin. He addresses Pahoran in verse 1, and then cuts to the chase in verse 2. Even before he talks about what he's going to say, he says in verse 2, I have somewhat to say unto them by the way of condemnation. Now, I mentioned this at the beginning of today's lesson, when I said that the king men provide some interesting illustrations of how some people try to attack or change the church. Now, I in no way want to say that Captain Moroni is like the king men. He's not trying to topple the government. He's trying to preserve freedom. 
but the way he approaches the issue has some interesting parallels to what the key men had done as far as what not to do in our own circumstance. We can apply this on the big picture level, protest groups or others that are trying to make systemic changes in the church, or maybe on a personal level where I'm trying to make some changes in my ward or I'm trying to talk with the priesthood leadership in my ward or stake in hopes that they'll turn their keys and then drive the vehicle in certain directions. There are good ways and not so good ways to suggest change or to offer advice. I remember being struck by that back in 2012 during the Mitt Romney campaign. And I'm not here to get political on whether you supported him or not. That's politics. I just want to talk about religion here. But as so many people were tying his religion to his politics, I was struck by something that they said about his time leading the church in Boston as a state president. Being a very progressive area, politically, educationally, intellectually, and therefore religiously, there were people within his stake that were really wanting to make some changes. And from what I remember from one of these news reports, he neither automatically acquiesced in everybody's desires. Remember, Pahoran couldn't do that for the kingmen. But neither did he automatically reject all of their demands. Again, like Pahoran did with the kingmen. He turned it to the voice of the people to decide. Well, what Romney did in that situation, he let them talk, let them raise their concerns, and then separated things into three categories. Things we can change. Let's do that. Let's talk about these things. Let's make some changes. Other extreme, things we absolutely cannot change. Doctrinal issues, for example. It's not our place to tell God what reality is. And then this third middle category of things we might be able to change and might not be able to change. But let's explore those issues. Let's take those issues in group three and see if they should end up in group one or group two. Can they be changed or not? I just thought that was very wise of him. Again, don't assume that questions aren't being asked by your leaders. Don't just come in with guns blazing, making demands that absolutely have to be met. I think, again, a man of action, Moroni, that's good. But perhaps he got a little ahead of himself in the letter he writes to Pahoran. And I think the first mistake he makes is in verse 2 where he begins the letter with condemnation. It would have been far better to say something like, I have somewhat to say unto them by the way of, fill in the blank, investigation or comprehension or information. I just want to let you know how things are going out on the front. I just need to make sure that you know what I know so you can make decisions accordingly. He was right that they didn't know everything he knew. And so he could have provided information and even recommendation, but he didn't know what was going on in their situation. So it wasn't right for him to approach them with condemnation from the get-go. So again, if you hope to see changes made on a church-wide level, or more likely, if you're approaching your own ward or stake leaders with concerns, and that's a legitimate thing to do, beware of coming at them by way of condemnation from the very beginning. Come with investigation or information instead. Verse 3, he continues, We have suffered exceedingly great sufferings, even hunger, thirst, and fatigue, all manner of afflictions of every kind. Now that's good that he's letting them know what life is like out in the trenches. He has every right and reason to do so. I just want you to be aware of what we're going through. They may not know, but then again, perhaps they do. 
So again, if you're willing to give information and not just condemnation, don't assume that no one knows what you're going through. Yes, share your experience, but you don't have to attach blame or demand specific forms of resolution. They may be more aware of the situation than you think. They may be asking the same questions you want them to. They just haven't received the answer. Now in verse 4, we see Moroni's strength pop through for a moment. Were this all we had suffered, we would not murmur nor complain. We're soldiers after all. This is kind of what we signed up for. But here's what we are murmuring about. This is what we're condemning you for. Verse 5, great has been the slaughter among our people. Thousands have fallen by the sword. And it might have otherwise been. It didn't have to be this way. And what would have made the difference? If he had rendered unto our armies sufficient strength and succor for them. Great has been your neglect towards us. Now this is where strength becomes weakness. He says the way things are, that's good. But then he says, this is the way things should have been. We're on a little shakier ground here. And then, shakiest of all, he says, and it's your fault it's this way. He doesn't know for sure that it would have been different. He doesn't know for sure the Lord's will or exactly how it was supposed to be. But he makes that assumption and then assigns blame for it. That's the worst part. It's because of your neglect. In verse 6, we see both good and bad. Now behold, we desire to know the cause. That's good. We just want to understand what's going on. Can you please help explain the decision that you've made? That would reassure me that you actually are aware of my situation. You may have every good reason to say no to my request. I have felt that as I've made suggestions within my own sphere of influence. And I've always felt I will be the most loyal follower ever. Because I do trust that what you see from your position extends beyond what I can see from mine. I just want to make sure that you also see what I see. So I'm going to give the best advice. I want you to know all that I'm aware of from my position on the ground. And once I feel heard, if your solution is different than the one I would have suggested, I am totally, totally okay with that. Because now I know that your perspective includes mine. I just have to be humble enough to realize that my perspective does not include all of theirs. They see a bigger picture than I do. I just would hope that their picture includes mine. So first there's this assumption that your picture does not include my picture. Then sometimes there's an assumption of, and the result of your sight, of your picture, better be the result that I'm demanding because of mine. It wouldn't be fair for them to reject what I see, but it wouldn't be fair on my part to reject all the additional things that they see. See this balance that we're trying to strike? So I think it's okay. I think it's good that he's asking. We desire to know the cause. But then good flips to not so good, where he adds, of this exceedingly great neglect. Oh, see, now there's the blame again. It's not just we want to know the cause of the circumstance. We want to know the cause of your mistreatment. See, there's where the blame comes in. He does it again in the next phrase. Yea, we desire to know the cause, that's good, of your thoughtless state. That's not good. You see how we got that dig in at the end, that accusation. We can seek information without leveling accusation. 
That makes it far more likely that both sides can be heard and feel heard. He then says in 7, Can you think to sit upon your thrones? There's another subtle jab. Who sits on thrones? Kings do. Who's he writing to? Pahoran, who is not a king, who does not sit on a throne. He is the chief judge and sits on what the Book of Mormon specifically calls the judgment seat. It would have been more accurate and less accusatory for Moroni to say, can you think to sit upon your judgment seat? Instead, he says, you can sit on your throne, and then goes from the subtle to the obvious, in a state of thoughtless stupor. See, he goes from thoughtless state in six to thoughtless stupor in seven. It's not just thoughtlessness. It's not just ignorance. It's stupidity. It's a stupor of thought. While your enemies are spreading the work of death around you. I'll admit it's a little crass, but what do you expect from 19-year-old teenagers? I remember in one area of the mission field going on an exchange and going to this other missionary's apartment and needing to use the restroom. And I walked in and started laughing at the sign that they had placed above the toilet. It was a handwritten version of that scripture. Do you think you can sit upon your thrones in a state of thoughtless stupor while your enemies are spreading the work of death around you? Missionaries can find some pretty creative ways to motivate themselves, to be up and doing. And I got a kick out of that one. But again, back to our reality. What's the problem in seven? You're assigning motive and attaching blame. You're doing nothing. You're choosing to be inactive here. It's your thoughtlessness. It's this stupor. Now, this is where circumstance doesn't just lead to skepticism. It leads to cynicism. I can handle skepticism, disagreement, or I just wish things were different because people are people. Leaders are human. But when skepticism becomes cynicism, where I don't just doubt your decision, I doubt your motives, then there's no hope. It's like they can do no right. I can twist everything they do in a negative direction. I give this sinister spin on every word, every act, the person I'm opposing, from my elders quorum or Relief Society president all the way up to the president of the church. Beware of the cynical turn. In verse 8, he says, they looked up to you for protection. They placed you in a situation that you might have succored them. You might have sent armies. You might have strengthened them. You might have saved them from falling by the sword. That's all true. We do look up to them for protection. But do we also look up to them for guidance? It's not just demanding, this is what you should be doing for us. But do we give them the benefit of the doubt? that they're doing the very best they can, and that we sustain them even in their imperfection. So look up to your priesthood leaders for what they can offer, but also look up to them for the ways they've been called to guide. Verse 9, this is not all. Ye have withheld your provisions from them because of your exceedingly great neglect towards them. They've been doing everything they can, fighting and bleeding out their lives because of their great desires for the welfare of their people. Do you not have that same desire? Do you do nothing when they do everything? Again, do you sense the problem there? Assuming that they could and should have done more and that they're intentionally causing suffering instead? I get a sense of that sometimes when I read what ex-Latter-day Saints are saying about the leaders of the church. 
that there's malintent, that's again, skepticism turning into cynicism, that they could have done this and they should have done this when that's not the case. Are you really so unfamiliar with the character of these people that you would assign ill intent behind what they do? Get to know them. Read their words. Study their lives. No, they're not perfect. No one is. But I don't know of any group on earth more consecrated and Christ-like than the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. I love them. I am grateful for them. I sustain them with all my heart. I don't follow them unthinkingly, but I sustain them. I am amazed at the amount of homework they do, wanting their perspective to include every other smaller perspective that lies within it. I had a student that once came into my office and was complaining about a certain position that the church has held. And he said, yeah, I was invited to be part of a focus group with one of the members of the Quorum of the Twelve to talk about my issues and my political stances, my social agenda, and how the church can be more aware and more accommodating within the doctrine. I thought, I had no idea that there were such focus groups. I thought, man, maybe I should protest more so I can hang out with apostles now and then. But I was so amazed that there is that openness, that desire to see. I want to know what's happening on the ground. These men travel the world in order to add to their perspective and their experience. And there is no ill intent. There is no withholding, no neglect. And though on a lesser level, I do believe that much the same can be said of the wards and stakes throughout the church. Imperfect people, but trying their very best to see what their members see and feel what their members feel and meet their needs as best they can. They deserve our gratitude and our patience more than our cynicism or our blame. Verse 10, Moroni goes from assigning blame to assigning guilt and then passing judgment on that guilty verdict. He says, and now my beloved brethren, and then takes back the adjective, ye ought to be beloved. Ye ought to have stirred yourselves more diligently for the welfare and the freedom of this people. But behold, ye have neglected them there's the blame, insomuch that the blood of thousands shall come upon your heads, there's the guilt, for vengeance, there's the sentence after the guilty verdict, yea, known unto God were all their cries and all their sufferings. Again, assuming that none of those things were known to them. Of those cries and sufferings, of those casualties, he says in verse 12, do you suppose that because so many of your brethren have been killed, it's because of their wickedness? Because if you've supposed that, you've supposed in vain. Don't assume that their death was a result of their own wickedness. You see what he's doing here, though? He's accusing them of making an assumption that was ungrounded. And yet, what has Moroni been doing through most of this letter? Making assumptions that are largely ungrounded. Be careful about accusing others of making assumptions when we are often blind about our own. By the end of this letter, He's making demands. In verse 25, he's demanding that they come out and show a true spirit of freedom, which is a righteous demand. But behind it is that assumption that they have lost that spirit of freedom. And then the threat in 27, if you don't do that, then I will come among you and find anyone that has a desire for freedom. 
Yea, if there be even a spark of freedom remaining. And what will I do? I will stir up insurrections among you, even until those who have desires to usurp power and authority shall become extinct. This is no peaceful protest. This is stirring up insurrection. He then says in 28, I do not fear your power nor your authority. It is my God whom I fear. That's good. It is God who is the ultimate authority. But be careful about divorcing God from his prophets, which is subtly what Moroni has done in 28. God's over here, and I do honor him. You're over here, and I don't honor you, because I don't think you're honoring God, which in Pahoran's case was not true. Again, we should always put God's authority first, but be careful about drawing sharp distinctions as if prophets had no power nor authority from God. Verse 30, he reiterates his position, I wait for assistance from you, except you do administer unto our relief. There's the demand. Behold, I come unto you even in the land of Zarahemla and smite you with the sword. There's the threat. Insomuch that ye have no more power to impede the progress of this people in the cause of our freedom. There's the accusation. So beware of making threats and false accusations, of assuming that certain positions are impeding God's work when it may in fact be entirely God's will what is taking place. That's not the case here in Zarahemla, by the way. We're about to see that once Pahoran has a chance to speak for himself. But in terms of how your ward or stake or the church itself is run, claiming that certain positions or policies or programs are impeding the Lord's work, isn't that making you the prophet instead of them? Again, it's okay to be confident in your perspective, but please understand that yours is not all-encompassing. There are others that would be equally adamant in the opposite direction based on their perspective and their experience. And it's up to the leaders of the church to be open to all of those perspectives and most importantly, to have an unbending allegiance to the will of God, which they are untiringly trying to ascertain. In verse 32, Moroni does an interesting thing. He says, Behold, can you suppose that the Lord would spare you and come out in judgment against the Lamanites when it is the tradition of their fathers that has caused their hatred? That hatred has been redoubled by those who have dissented from us. He keeps seeing that. But then he adds this by way of jab. Your iniquity is for the cause of your love of glory and the vain things of the world. It's so interesting that in the same verse that he gives the Lamanites the benefit of the doubt, he does not give his own leaders the benefit of the doubt at all. He just admitted the Lamanites are doing the best they can with the limited information that they have. Can he not offer his own leaders a similar gift? 33, you know you transgress the laws of God. You know you trample them under your feet. How can he say that they know that when he doesn't know it himself? Moroni, I love you. You are such an incredible commander. I hope nobody feels that I'm throwing him under the bus in chapter 60. But that coin has flipped, and all the heads that make him the kind of person that hell itself shakes about, oh, the tails of that coin is a dangerous thing. He says at the end of 33, Behold, the Lord saith unto me, If those whom ye have appointed your governors do not repent of their sins and iniquities, ye shall go out to battle against them. Now here we have a really important detail because he invokes the Lord here for the first time, really. The Lord has told me something. Here's personal revelation on my part. And this is where it gets tricky because we do believe in personal revelation. 
But there are times when individual revelation and institutional revelation may not coincide. And what do we do in those situations? Again, this is where unanimity in the First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve helps offset fallibility. Again, that's DNC 107. Those decisions made in righteousness and made in unanimity have power and efficacy that no lesser decision or even lesser revelation, I think we can call it that, could claim. You see, that's the hard thing about filtering revelation through mortal experience and perception. One of the most frequent questions I'm ever asked is how do you know when it's the Holy Ghost versus your own thoughts? It's a great question. Even the Goldilocks zone we talked about at the end of Alma 42. How do I know I'm not being too hot or not being too cold? Based on my own experience, my own mental circuitry, my own personality or upbringing, both nurture and nature can affect things. Again, that's why unanimity helps offset fallibility. That's why I'm so grateful for the experience, both in the church and in business, in education, in the world. I don't think there's a group on earth with the kind of experiential reach of the First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve. And so again, when students come to me and disagree, I always tell them, you're welcome to disagree. But number one, have you done the same amount of homework on this issue that the First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve has? And have you done that homework with the same caliber of conversation partners that they have? I've yet to meet anyone that can say yes to that question. And then the other half, and do you live your life in as consecrated a manner as they do to open themselves to the kind of revelation that they and the church needs to be able to navigate this minefield of a modern world? When making decisions, we should never use personal revelation as a trump card to say this is how it has to be, especially as we've learned so often from President M. Russell Ballard, as we counsel in our councils that God believes in the principle of scattered revelation. Hold on to your revelation. Present it, but don't trump others with it. Allow for their experience and their perspective, and yes, even their revelations, to be part of the pieces you add to the puzzle as collectively we try to understand the picture that was on the box that God gave us. I can think of instances when both President Eyring and President Nelson have talked about the unanimity that comes in meetings of First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve, and the wrestling that goes into that effort to achieve unanimity. As President Nelson has said, we know we've reached the Lord's will when we finally reached unanimity, because we don't just come in and trump one another with a revelation card. President Kimball didn't do that with the revelation on the priesthood. In fact, as I've studied earlier church history, I think that's where some of our struggles have lain, where certain leaders, some of whom had Captain Moroni's same kind of coin, men of action, men of strong conviction, powerful leaders that had to be that powerful. That, as I've said so many times with coins, you can't just chuck the coin because the heads of it is what saves us. The church could not have survived certain time periods without the strong heads of certain leaders' coins. 
And yet I see people now attacking early church leaders by flipping the coin and acting as if only the tails were a part of it. And it's as wrong for some groups to ignore the heads as it is for other groups to completely ignore the tails. As mortal, fallible human beings, we all have coins, and each coin has a heads and a tails, and we need to be aware of both. Again, that's where unanimity comes in. I see a unanimity in the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve, and I've seen it for generations now, that far surpasses what was sometimes seen in the 19th century. Again, I'm not trying to throw any historical figures under the bus but I think we have grown into our understanding and appreciation and obedience to section 107 in beautiful ways. Captain Moroni then ends the epistle in 34, 5, and 6 with some more demands. I, Moroni, am constrained according to the covenant which I have made to keep the commandments of my God. So I'm only doing what I've promised to do. It's a bit of a trump card there too, potentially. Therefore, I would that you should adhere to the word of God as I perceive that word to be. Send speedily unto me of your provisions and of your men, also to Helaman. And if you don't do this, I will come unto you speedily. So you either act speedily or I will. Again, he's a man of action. For behold, God will not suffer that we should perish with hunger. Therefore, he will give unto us of your food, even if it must be by the sword. Now see that ye fulfill the word of God. Again, that trump card. 36, he ends. I am Moroni, your chief captain. I seek not for power, but to pull it down even if that power is yours. I seek not for honor of the world, but for the glory of my God and the freedom and welfare of my country. And thus I close mine epistle. Hasn't said another word about Pahoran here. It just closes all about his own position. And this is the way things have to be. Now, in the middle of this epistle, Moroni has, he's trying to wrap his head around this. Why is this happening? Why is the government sitting on its throne in a state of thoughtless stupor? Why are they withholding provisions? And as he tries to make sense of this, he comes up basically with three possible options to explain their neglect. First one is in verse 18, where he's been explaining the situation. This is right on the heels of that great verse we already saw in verse 16 about among ourselves, among ourselves, among ourselves. We've got our own problems in 16. We've got outside problems in 17. And then 18, he stops himself. He interrupts his own message and says, but why should I say much concerning this matter? For we know not but what ye yourselves are seeking for authority. We know not but what ye are also traitors to your country. He already dealt with the king then problem in those earlier chapters. So he has every reason to believe that this possibility is still out there. In fact, he's right about this, though he missed the mark somewhat. A lot like Teancum. He threw the javelin at the target and just barely missed. Anger seems to alter the aim, right? But that's one possibility, iniquity. Maybe you're power hungry too. Maybe you're traitors to the cause. Second possibility, verse 19. Or is it that ye have neglected us because you're in the heart of our country? You're surrounded by security. You don't need food, so you don't think we do. So here, for the second possibility, it's complacency. It's that complacency that leads to neglect. It's the complacency in verse 20 that leads to our forgetting the commandments of God, forgetting the captivity of our fathers, because I'm not feeling captive, forgetting the many times we've been delivered out of the hands of our enemies. It seems to be that complacency he has in mind in verse 22, where he says, will you sit in idleness? Again, neglect, withholding, idleness, 
Well, ye are surrounded with thousands of those, yea, tens of thousands, who also sit in idleness. So this is complacency surrounded by other complacency. No wonder you don't care about what's happening out in the field. You're so far removed from it. While there are thousands round about in the borders of the land who are falling by the sword, yea, wounded and bleeding. Verse 23, do you suppose that God will look upon you as guiltless while ye sit still? There's that idleness. And behold these things. Now those seem to be the two most obvious possibilities in Moroni's mind. It's either iniquity or complacency. So you tell me, Pahoran. Explain yourself. Do you care too much about your own power or do you care too little about our freedom? You're living there in Zarahemla. Has it gone to your head that you want the power for yourself? Or have you taken your ease because you seem so insulated from the threats that are all about us? But there is a third possibility, and this is a really interesting one. You see it in verse 21, introduced with another or. So we saw 18, maybe it's iniquity. 19, or, maybe it's complacency. 21, or, here's the third, is it a naive faith, kind of a cheap grace mentality that's behind your neglect? See how he says it. Or do ye suppose that the Lord will still deliver us while we sit upon our thrones and do not make use of the means which the Lord has provided for us? Is this a faith without works kind of mentality? Is this the cheap grace, sloppy agape, that we sometimes worry about in other faiths? You see, go back to verse 11 and see what he says there. Could ye suppose that ye could sit upon your thrones and because of the exceeding goodness of God, ye could do nothing and he would deliver you? Behold, if ye have supposed this, ye have supposed in vain. Yes, bank on the goodness of God. King Benjamin teaches that powerfully in his address. Yes, it is by grace we are saved. And our works do not earn the salvation at all. But those works do retrain our reflexes. They do reconcile our will. Yes, God is asking us to participate in the relationship that salvation is all about. So do something. Don't just sit idly by thinking, oh, God's got it under control. He'll take care of it. This is where faith becomes unfaithful because we don't back up our faith with any work at all. I was struck as I pondered these three possibilities. Iniquity, complacency, naive faith or cheap grace. And realize that those are the same three strategies that are mentioned back in 2 Nephi 28, when Nephi explains what the adversary is up to. In 2 Nephi 28, verse 20, Nephi says that for some, the devil shall rage in the hearts of the children of men and stir them up to anger against that which is good. There's the iniquity side of things. You become traitors to the cause. You're power hungry, just like the king men were. But in 21, others will he pacify and lull them away into carnal security that they will say, all is well in Zion. Yea, Zion prospereth, all is well. See, that's the complacency side. You're there in Zarahemla. Life's good there. You can sit in idleness, surrounded by other people in idleness, while the rest of us out on the frontier are bleeding out our lives. And then the third, verse 22, And behold others, he flattereth away and telleth them, There is no hell, and no devil either. 
You see the goodness of God? There's no possible punishment. He's so good that nothing bad could possibly happen to us. He hinted at that earlier in the chapter, back in verse 8, where he talks about those who say, Eat, drink, and be merry. Nevertheless, fear God. This is all faith with no works to back it up. He'll justify in committing a little sin. I mean, maybe he'll beat us with a few stripes, but at the end we'll be saved in the kingdom of God. We might lose a battle here or there, but the war is won, basically, because God is good. As long as we fear God a little, then we can eat, drink, and be merry a lot. You see the challenge here? As we go back to Moroni's epistle and now Pahoran's response, I just think we need to be very careful, you and I, to guard against all three of those issues. Our own iniquity, the things that keep us from being fully engaged in the cause of Christ. Iniquity will sap our desire to be engaged in that cause in the first place. Complacency makes us not think that any of it is necessary. And that naive faith, that cheap grace, is perhaps the most subtle of all. Again, I'm not pushing us towards some kind of a over-anxious works righteousness, but to be anxiously engaged in a good cause because the power is in us and God expects us to use that power. It came from Him for that reason. Well, how does Pahoran respond? Beautifully. If you go to chapter 61... I don't know of a better example in Scripture of someone who chooses not to be offended when he could have had every reason to be. Pahorn is as good as gold here. And if you've ever been on the receiving end of someone's boldness turned into overbearance, the receiving end of someone's unbridled passion with not enough love, then look to Pahorn as an incredible example of responding in kindness instead of responding in kind. Jesus, of course, is the ultimate example with statements like, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But to see among mere mortals Pahoran's response with grace to the anger of Moroni is a sight to behold. Verse 1, first detail. Now it came to pass that soon after Moroni had sent his epistle under the chief governor, he received an epistle back from Pahoran. I'm impressed that Pahoran didn't stew on it. Just immediately, this is righteous reflex on his part. I don't want even Moroni to have to stew on these things. He needs to know the situation quickly. He is a man of action after all. I need to respond with action of my own. Pahoran didn't need a lot of time to overcome his offended emotions. That didn't seem to be the way he was wired. He reassures Moroni in verse 2. I say unto you, Moroni, I do not joy in your great afflictions. Yea, it grieves my soul. He acknowledges what Moroni is going through. He doesn't immediately put up the dukes and defend himself. He validates. He acknowledges. He agrees. He empathizes. I love that this is the initial reaction. Not personal vindication, but rather validation of the person who just attacked him, validating the feelings, the experiences, the perceptions behind that attack. Obviously, he's not going to agree with everything that Moroni said to him, especially those false accusations, the faulty information that he was acting on. But the feelings behind those things, the experiences behind them, those are all legitimate. Moroni really is going through all of those things. 
and though we misinterpreted the cause, those feelings can and should be validated. There's compassion here. There's empathy here. I love that from the very beginning, instead of being in an adversarial relationship, kind of mano a mano, oh yeah, you've attacked me? Well, let me defend myself and attack you back. It's not even defend myself. Not yet anyway. The very first thing he does is move. So it's not face to face looking across the table at each other adversarially, but rather, Moroni, let me come around to your side so that you see that I am seeing your perspective that your walls are continually before me, that I know what you're going through. And it grieves me just like it grieves you. You see, if I ever hope for you to start to gain some of my perspective, I need to reassure you that my perspective does include your own. Validate the experiences and feelings of the other person is huge. That's true of suffering. That's true of complaint. It's true of faith crisis. Far better to validate others than vindicate self. Verse 3, he expands upon that validation because he says, Behold, there are those who do joy in your afflictions. So Moroni, you're right to feel that way. You're right that there are people like that. I just don't happen to be one of them. I found great value in that as well. When people are struggling with something, instead of just denying their experience and defending everyone under the sun, when some people get angry and like, oh, the church members are so judgmental, where they just pass judgment across the entire church, which is a little bit judgmental as well. But to be able to say, you know what? I've met some judgmental Latter-day Saints as well. And I'm so sorry for that. Or when I've met non-members that sometimes will say, oh, I grew up in a Latter-day Saint area and they were so exclusionary. Instead of immediately defending church culture, to validate, to honor their experience and let them know, I am so sorry that you went through that experience. I have had times where I have felt excluded from things as well. And it's hard. Before we can say not every Latter-day Saint is like that, I think we owe it to people to admit that there are some Latter-day Saints that are like that. To defend church positions on certain issues, it may be necessary to admit that we haven't always been right on other issues and to take ownership of that, to say there are some who are exactly what you described. But Moroni, please understand that I'm on your side here. I'm not that person. He now starts to let Moroni know what he's been going through. Your walls are before me. Can I please place mine before you? so we can understand in both directions where we're coming from. Some have risen up in rebellion against me and also of my people who are free men. They are exceedingly numerous. Verse 4, it is those who have sought to take away the judgment seat from me. I don't know if that is a gentle correction. You called it a throne, Moroni. I still consider it a judgment seat, but they've taken it from me. That is what has been the cause of this great iniquity. They've used great flattery. That always seems to be the word associated with dissension and drawing people to their flawed cause. They have led away the hearts of many people, easy to do once you've been flattered into it, which will be the cause of sore affliction among us. They have withheld our provisions. They have daunted our free men that they have not come unto you. Interesting that it's not just they're keeping back their provisions, but to daunt 
those that would otherwise come unto your aid. I see that often. There's so much more that we could be doing to strengthen one another, but we sometimes feel daunted by what others might think or how they might react. I can't possibly raise my hand and share what I really feel in class because my professor or my classmates will destroy me. I can't really speak up on social media in defense of the church when it's attacked or even just to share light when I have the opportunity because the way people might react. We often feel daunted and that's one reason we don't do more. In verse 5, I had to flee to the land of Gideon with as many people as I could get. In 6, I sent a proclamation throughout this part of the land. And now people are flocking to us daily to their arms in defense of their country and their freedom and to avenge our wrongs. It's like, Moroni, I'm so sorry I haven't been able to fight your battle, but I have been fighting a battle of my own. I'll admit, I'm in a bishopric currently. And there have been times I have wished I could do more for my fellow members, but I have been fighting battles of my own. And everyone has them, trying to keep things okay at home, unable to meet everyone else's needs because I'm barely able to meet my own. That's true on every level of the church, including at the highest. Prophets and apostles don't get reprieves from the challenges of health, both physical and mental the needs of loved ones and family members. It's incredible the burdens that they bear, their own as well as everyone else's. But I do love what Pahorn is doing in spite of all that, sending out proclamations that people are heeding. I'm doing exactly what you're asking for, Moroni. I'm so sorry it's not as fast as you want it to be. Sometimes all people need is a leader, and I'm trying to be that in spite of the fact that some people have rejected that leadership. They are flocking to us daily. That's good news. Now, in my absence, back in Zarahemla, verse 8, they've taken possession of the land. They've appointed a king. We'll find out later that his name is Pecos. And worst of all, he wants to form an alliance with the Lamanites. This is a lot like the Amalekai, Lehontai, poison by degrees kind of a thing where, hey, as long as I can be king in Zarahemla, then we won't resist when the Lamanites come and conquer all the land. That's kind of the deal that he's set up in chapter 61, verse 8. So by the end of verse 8, hopefully, Moroni feels both understood and now understands that Pahoran does get the situation I'm in and that now I get the situation that Pahoran is in. So having clarified things, what Pahoran then does in verse 9 is absolutely beautiful. Now, in your epistle, you have censured me. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't completely ignore the situation. But then he says, but it mattereth not. It's okay. I am not angry, even though Moroni had been. It's the old statement, it takes two to fight. I always tell my kids, it usually takes two people not paying attention to have an accident. And as long as one person is paying attention, that's often enough to compensate for the other person not. You can usually avoid it that way. You can do the thinking and paying attention for both of you. So be that person. In a similar vein, it typically takes two angry people to bring contention. And usually only one person not being angry to avoid it. 
It doesn't require both people not being angry. It doesn't require both people to pay attention, usually. And that's good news, since I can't control the other person. But I can control myself. And here Pahoran is doing that. I'm not angry. Can we choose not to be offended? But even better than that, it's not just a neutral, I'm not angry. It's a positive. Verse 9 continues, I rejoice in the greatness of your heart. That is so generous. To see the goodness, even the greatness of Moroni. It's acknowledging, I see your coin. Now, what I just saw was its tails. You censured me. Hey, it doesn't matter. Because I've just flipped the coin back over. And I saw an attribute that I absolutely love. Your passion is what makes your men want to follow you into battle. I wouldn't change that. I wouldn't take it from you. You could not be the military leader that you are if you did not have this coin. Now, I just bore the brunt of its tails side, but I'll take the heads any day. I rejoice in it. I remember an experience years ago where a member of a faculty I was on was a man of great passion as well. Awesome teacher. I walked into the workroom once to make some copies, and there was an altercation, a verbal altercation going on between him and another member of the faculty. He was just verbally lighting into him. I was like, ooh, just make the copies, and then on my merry way. It, It was contentious and ugly, but only on his part, at least as far as I could tell. The other, who was such a meek man, just took it, just accepted it. Later that day, the hothead, the firebrand, who I love, came into my office and he sat down and he said, Jared, I just want to apologize for what you saw. I already apologized to this other colleague. We're good now, but I just want to make it right with you. I, I wish you hadn't had to see that. I was in the wrong. I just get so worked up about some things and I sometimes just explode and I've got to change that. And I remember saying to him, this is another example where the coin really became clear to me. And I started to sense, wait, he's thinking about getting rid of the coin. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. don't completely get rid of that side of you. Because it is your passion in teaching in the classroom that allows you to connect with some harder hearts that the rest of us are just unable to reach. You have such a gift, especially with certain types of students. And I would hate for you to lose your ability to connect with them by completely getting rid of this coin. Yes, try a little harder to keep the head side up and not not let it flip over, but recognize it's the same coin. Pahoran does that beautifully. I'm not mad at your tails. I rejoice in your heads. He then clarifies his own position at the end of verse 9. I, Pahoran, do not seek for power which is what you said about yourself as well, Moroni. You see, I'm not just establishing my own position. I'm letting you know that you and I have the same one. We're cut from similar cloth, my brother. I only want to retain my judgment seat that I may preserve the rights and the liberty of my people. My soul standeth fast in that liberty in the which God hath made us free. Can't you hear Moroni saying the same exact thing? Moroni, I'm like you. To build on common beliefs, he said at the beginning, I'm coming around to your side. We do see things from such similar perspectives. The next few verses seem to continue 
connecting these two great souls. Verse 10 and 11, I will fight to defend freedom, though I'm not a bloodthirsty man. Sound like Moroni? Verse 12, I will submit myself to God. Sound like Moroni? Verse 13, we should place our trust in God. He will deliver us. Sound like Moroni? No wonder he can then say in verse 14, my beloved brother Moroni. Remember when Moroni said that? My beloved brother? Well, at least you ought to be beloved. Here, Pahoran gives him the adjective and lets him keep it. You're my beloved brother, Moroni. And together, you and I, similar spirits, engaged in the identical cause, let us resist evil. And whatsoever evil we cannot resist with our words, yea, such as rebellions and dissensions, let us resist them with our swords. But the order there was key. Words first, swords second. But we must retain our freedom, that we may rejoice in the great privilege of our church and in the cause of our Redeemer and our God. He invokes the cause, just like Captain Moroni had. He reasserts his own authority as commander-in-chief. You see, he doesn't overcorrect. He doesn't overswing the pendulum and now kind of come whimpering before Moroni. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's, no, I understand where you're coming from. You need to understand where I'm coming from. And now let me exercise my position and give you some command. You commanded me at the end of your epistle. That was out of line. I love you for it, Moroni. I love the passion behind it. I love the heads of your coin, but let me make some commands that need to be made. Verse 15, therefore, come unto me speedily. There's that same word you used. I like your adverb. Come speedily with a few of your men. Leave the remainder in the charge of Lehi and Teancum. So again, this is a commander-in-chief establishing where the troop movements should go. Give unto them power to conduct the war in that part of the land. So delegate authority to them, just like I have delegated it to you. Do it according to the Spirit of God, which is also the Spirit of freedom which is in them. Beautiful that he associated the two. In the meantime, verse 16, I have sent a few provisions unto them, so they don't perish until you can get back to them. In other words, I'm doing all that I possibly can. I wish I could do more. I would if I could. I will when I am able. Verse 17, gather together whatsoever force you can upon your march hither, which is what I've been doing since I got driven out of Zarahemla. And then we, and I love where this now, instead of just commands me to you, now it's fellowship, relationship, we're going to do this together. We will go speedily against those dissenters in the strength of our God, according to the faith which is in us. We're a team, you and I, Moroni. Let's do this together. Verse 18, here's his optimism, his confidence, similar to the optimistic confidence of Moroni, as shown in chapter 60. We will take possession of the city of Zarahemla. We will. We're going to do it. And why are we going to do it? That we may obtain more food to send forth unto Lehi and Teancum. It's not for us. There's no iniquity there. It's not because we don't know they need it. There's no complacency there. And we will send it instead of just expecting God to rain manna from heaven because there's no naive faith or cheap grace here. We're going to do this. And as he says at the end of 18, we will go forth against them in the strength of the Lord and we will put an end to this great iniquity. So I guess the we isn't just you and me, Moroni. The we is you, me, and God. Verse 19 then, 
again congratulating and holding up the person that had just put him down. Moroni, I do joy in receiving your epistle. Again, it's not just neutral. It's not just, I'm going to pretend that never happened. I recognized your negativity, right? You censured me in your epistle. But I'll recognize the negativity, bring it up to neutrality, and then extend it into positivity. I rejoice in the greatness of your heart, Moroni. Or as he says in verse 19, I joy. I'm so grateful that you wrote that. I'm not exactly grateful for how you said certain things or what you said in certain instances. But overall, so grateful for what you said. Why? Because it helped me. I know you intended to hurt me, but it ended up helping me. And here's how. I was somewhat worried concerning what we should do. Whether it should be just in us to go against our brethren. You see, as chief judge over all the land, I'm responsible for all of those people. I'm responsible for the dissenters as much as the loyalists. And I really worried about, if we're trying to achieve unity, going against our own people, is that going to do more harm than good? I know that was one of Lincoln's big concerns in pursuing the Civil War. The harder we make it on the South in order to win the war, the harder it will be to win the peace afterwards. We're trying to reconcile here, not just conquer an enemy nation. We're going to have to heal all these wounds. So I wasn't sure about cutting deeply to begin with. And so your words, Moroni, came as such a blessing to me. They helped me make sense of what my role should be, what I should do. I'm amazed that Pahoran turned Moroni's attack into an offering. It turned Moroni's blame into a blessing. It made Moroni feel better about his mistake. I mean, read Alma 61 as if you were Moroni. And I think there'd be times where it's like, oh, kind of face palm, foot in mouth. I can't believe I said that to him. And to be so reassured with a verse like 19, I'm grateful for what you did. I love you more now than I did before. And I loved you a lot then. I forgive all the tales and I rejoice in the heads of your coin, my beloved brother Moroni. Verse 20, he quotes the good part of what Moroni had written him. Ye have said, except they repent, the Lord hath commanded you that you should go against them. Now, this is a beautiful example of what a leader's role is in assembling the pieces of the puzzle of that scattered revelation. The bishop in ward council or mom and dad in a family council. Trusting that revelation has been scattered all over the place. You've had some, I've had some. How do we get them to match? Because chances are they won't be identical at the beginning. Is there a perspective that I can look at your revelation through and see that it actually does coincide with what might seem like, not rival revelations, but different perspectives on things. It's like Jesus healing the blind man in stages. Sometimes clarity comes successively, line upon line and precept upon precept, with one line coming to one person and another line coming to another. Precepts being scattered across the group. Pahorn is is textbook here. I'm so grateful for what you said. Your revelation really helped me. It was 
slightly misapplied because you were directing it against me when it really should have been directed against Pecos, this usurper king. He is on a throne, so I'm even okay with us using the word. He took away my judgment seat and turned it into a throne. And yes, he is sitting on it in thoughtless stupor. And you said that God told you to go against those usurpers. You were wrong in thinking it was me, but you were right in feeling divine justification for righting those wrongs. And I was still struggling with that. So your revelation really helps me. Thank you for sharing it with me. So 21, one last command from the commander-in-chief. See that ye strengthen Lehi and Teancum in the Lord. They'll need his strength as well. Tell them to fear not, for God will deliver them, even as they're waiting for us to help deliver them too. See, I don't believe in the cheap grace, but boy, I do believe in grace. Yes, I believe that faith without works is dead, but boy, do I believe in the importance of faith. It's what's going to carry you through until some additional works can kick in. Give that same encouragement to all those who stand fast in that liberty wherewith God hath made them free. And now I close mine epistle to my beloved brother, Moroni. Different spirit from the way that Moroni ended his. But again, this reminder, the last thing I want ringing in your ears, Moroni, is not my censure for you censuring me, not even a reassertion of my authority as your commander-in-chief, rather a reminder of my love for you, my beloved brother, Moroni. Now, how does Moroni respond to Pahoran's response? Beautifully, as to be expected. It's almost like Pahoran authorized, allowed, enabled Moroni to respond beautifully because he responded so beautifully to begin with. There didn't have to be pride from below here because there was no pride from above here. Pahoran just smoothed everything out beautifully. So in 62 verse 1, when Moroni had received this epistle, he didn't even put his foot in his mouth. He didn't have to. His heart instead was what was moved and it took courage. He was filled with exceedingly great joy because of the faithfulness of Pahoran. Remember what we saw in his letter? It was the iniquity of the people that caused him sorrow. So flip it over. And it's the faithfulness of his leader that brings him such great joy. You get that repeated in verse 2. He had mourned exceedingly because of the iniquity of those who had driven Pahoran from the judgment seat. Again, mourning over iniquity. So what's he do? He does exactly as ordered. He knows that he can trust his leader. And so I'll do exactly what he said. His perspective did include my perspective. Mine didn't include his. My bad. But let me fully implement my leader's plan because I trust him. Verse 3, he does according to the desire of Pahoran. He gives Lehi and Teancum command over the rest of the army. In 4, he raises the standard of liberty wherever he goes. In whatsoever place he enters, he gains whatsoever force he can in all his march toward the land of Gideon. By the way, earlier it was called the title of liberty. That seems to be the more official name here. Same basic idea, the standard of liberty. But since we often talk about standards in a different way, I do love the thought of raising that standard. Everywhere I go, I'm going to try to raise standards 
not just plant titles or unfurl flags, but to raise standards, leave people better than I found them, living at a higher level. And it's that raised standard that actually attracts people. We sometimes think if I'll lower the standard, make it easier for people, then they'll come. But that's not the case. Mike Wallace interviewed President Hinckley on 60 Minutes and asked, why is your church growing so much? He even said, it's because we have high standards. We make demands of our members. That's not just true of Latter-day Saints. Across the board, the religions that have higher standards of things grow faster than those that tend to lower them. There's five thousands flock to this standard. They take up their swords in defense of their freedom. They just needed a leader to follow, a voice to heed. And so in six, Moroni gathers together anyone who can. He unites his forces with those of Pahoran. So easy to unite with him when he did nothing to divide us from each other, even after I gave a pretty inflammatory epistle to him. It's that gathered, united group that becomes exceedingly strong in verse 6, stronger than their enemy. And they're able to drive out the men of Pecos. Pecos is slain, and by the end of 8, Pahoran is restored to the judgment seat. Those enemies in verse 9 are tried according to the law, so it's not vengeance they receive, but rather justice. And then as soon as they possibly can, verse 11, having restored peace, what do they do in verse 12? They immediately cause that provisions should be sent and also an army of 6,000 men should be sent unto Helaman. That's triple the size of his initial army to assist him in preserving that part of the land. They do exactly what Moroni had asked for, exactly what Helaman was begging for, exactly what Pahoran had wanted to do from the very beginning. And in 13, he also caused that an army of 6,000 men with a sufficient quantity of food should be sent to the armies of Lehi and Teancum. Don't just send the army. Make sure they're well equipped. We don't just need more missionaries, President Kimball said so long ago. We need better prepared missionaries. Not enough to send an army. Send them with food to survive on. Go fortify the land. And that's exactly what they do. In 14, Moroni leaves a large body in Zarahemla to protect what they already have, right? Better to prepare and prevent than repair and repent. Better to maintain than regain. But it's not just maintaining, because he also sends a large body of men towards the land of Nephiha, being determined to overthrow the Lamanites in that city. In other words, we want to regain them. So maintain Zarahemla, regain Nephiha. The work of retention and reactivation have to go on simultaneously. They pursue these dual objectives. They're successful in both, conquering Lamanites all along the way. Verse 16, causing them to enter into a covenant to no more take up weapons of war. And just to help them keep that covenant, in verse 17, they send them to dwell with the people of Ammon. No better people to help newly covenanted pacifists keep their commitments. I love that it's a work of rehabilitation and not of revenge. Now to finish out this chapter, 18 to 26 is how Moroni decides how are we going to regain the city of Nephiha. And it's similar to the strategy we saw where they arm the prisoners within. Now this time there's no prisoners within, it's just Lamanites within. But similarly, seeing that there is power working inside out instead of outside in. In verse 20, at night, when others seem to be sleeping, to be up and doing instead, 
Moroni goes forth in the darkness of the night to spy out where the Lamanites happen to be camping within the city. They're all asleep and they're all by the entrance. Remember we talked about that last week. We choose entrances because that's a place that we can channel conversations through to be able to defend ourselves. But all encamped there and all asleep, Moroni then prepares his army, rallies his own troops, tells them to prepare in haste. Some things need to be done quickly. Strong cords and ladders. And going to a part of the city where the Lamanites are not camped, the Nephite army climbs these ladders, lets themselves down into the city. And by the end of verse 23, when the morning came, they were all within the walls of the city. Obviously, that's not good news for the Lamanite army when they wake up and realize, oh no, they're in here with us. And so they surrender. And thus, verse 26, Moroni and Pahoran obtained the possession of the city of Nephiha without the loss of one soul. And then in 27, they do what they've done before. They take the prisoners of war and any who are desirous, willing to lay down those weapons, go ahead and join the people of Ammon. Become a free people. They'll take good care of you. As many as desired that, verse 28, it was granted according to their desires. And they changed. Living among the Ammonites, these anti-Nephi-Lehi's, they began to labor exceedingly, not to build the walls that would captivate them. Those were the unrepentant POWs. These ones did labor exceedingly just to till the ground, to raise grain and flocks and herds. That way, at the end of 29, the Nephites were relieved from a great burden. In fact, what would have been a burden ends up becoming a great blessing to them instead. We'll see that same idea when we meet the stripling warriors. But what a relief it would have been at that time that we don't have to guard against these POWs. They're changing with the help of those who have changed earlier. And that's going to be important because the war does rage on. By the end of this chapter, verse 39, there are still wars and bloodsheds and famine and affliction without. And in verse 40, there are still murders and contentions and dissensions and iniquity within. Those problems always seem to coexist. Without were fightings, within were fears, Paul once said. Dangers on the outside, dissensions on the in. Welcome to the war chapters. Welcome to our reality. Next, we will meet the stripling warriors. One of the incredible highlights of these difficult days. But before beginning the next half with them, may I finish this half with just a reminder that Captain Moroni was not alone in his efforts. We need reinforcements, he's pleading with Pahoran. But those that he did work with, his fellow servants and fellow sufferers, were such a blessing to him. And as we wage our own war, the one within, we can draw so much strength from our band of brothers, our squad of sisters, what Paul called the fellowship of suffering. And so just to close with a few final verses, back in chapter 53, verse 2, a man we don't talk enough about, Lehi, another military commander. Behold, this Lehi was a man who had been with Moroni in the more part of all his battles. And he was a man like unto Moroni. They rejoiced in each other's safety. They were beloved by each other and also beloved by all the people of Nephi. 
Again, a man who we know so little about, and yet if he's like Moroni, then he's good enough for me. This is a lot like David and Jonathan in the Old Testament. People who rejoice in each other's safety. Do we do that? It's like Alma reuniting with the sons of Mosiah after 14 years of service apart and rejoicing that they were still their brethren in the Lord. I imagine in military context, that is even more intensified. Imagine going through boot camp with your certain squad, and then you go through wartime, deployment after deployment, the real war with real casualties that Elder Maxwell described. We saw that with T. Ancom and the sorrow of seeing one of your brothers or sisters perish in the battlefield. Well, here, someone like Lehi, someone just like Moroni, beloved of each other, rejoicing in one another's safety. I hope we see each other and treat each other like that. In chapter 58, verse 41, as Helaman is writing letters to Moroni to explain what's going on among his group, he closes this letter in these words. Now, my beloved brother Moroni, may the Lord our God, who has redeemed us and made us free, keep you continually in his presence. May you be with him and he with you. May he keep his eye on you, my beloved brother. May he favor this people, even that ye may have success in obtaining the possession of all which the Lamanites have taken. I'm praying for you as much, if not more, than I'm praying for myself. When Moroni reads that, 59 verse 1, he was exceedingly rejoiced because of the welfare, yea, the exceeding success which Helaman had had in obtaining those lands which were lost. That's real friendship, brotherhood, sisterhood, praying for each other, rejoicing in each other's success, finding joy in the way the Lord has blessed one another. And he doesn't stop with that. In verse 2, Moroni makes Helaman's success known unto all his people in all the land that they might rejoice also. It's almost like testimony to me. This is how good God has been for my friends, for my family, for the people that I care about and am concerned for. I'm so grateful for the Lord's goodness shown in other people's lives. It gives me a reassurance that God will be good in mine, too. The war rages on. There are yet stripling warriors to see. But to trust the strength of the Lord, trust in the goodness of God, and to be up and doing ourselves are some of the messages I hope that we've been gaining from these wonderful war chapters.